Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome one more time to Encounter Church. Hey, what we just heard about a doing good month, we kicked that off last weekend here at church, and what this is all about is a reflection of God's wisdom in Galatians. Let's not grow weary of doing good, for at the proper time, we will receive harvest if we do not give up. So what we're doing is we're blessing these Afghan refugees, doing for one what we wish we could do for all by providing them a warm welcome to Michigan in the name of Jesus. And so we kicked off last week with that graphic, $29.95, right? And we said, listen, we just want to have some fun with this, right? That's roughly the cost of a, of a winter coat for an individual in need this season. And so we said, hey, $29.95, move the decimal place as you, uh, as you would like. We had over a quarter of you jump in last weekend during, the, during worship uh, to say, yes, I'm in. I want to partner. I want to provide somebody with this warm welcome. And that's awesome. That's an awesome start. What we're doing is we're asking everybody to participate as you're able. Again, move the decimal place as you, as you, uh, as you feel led. Um, you can also bring in some hats and gloves. I talked to a couple after 9.15 and they said, we're going to the store right now and we're going to be back to drop off a bunch of them in both of the locations. Fulton Heights and Kentwood to, uh, to participate as well. Again, a warm welcome for those in need this season. Also, you can pull out your phones during the message, blue screen on your face. I'm not offended. I love it. Encounterchurch.org slash doing good. Let's participate. Uh, last week, we kicked off the series of people problems by, uh, by how to show love to, to the overly needy people in our lives. And one of our takeaways among many is, is this recognition, right, that the ground at the foot of the cross is level. Like, we are all needy people. We are all in equal need of the grace that Jesus offers. This week, we continue the series part two by talking about controlling people. Like, listen, how many of you kind of know a, a control freak in your life? You can put up your hands. That's okay. And if, okay, and if you tried to put up your hand and somebody, like, pulled it down, well, there you go, right there. You have your answer. You can put up the other one uh, if you feel so led. Like we have, we have this controlling people and it's, it's a range, right? It's a spectrum. Like for instance, my wife didn't know uh, that when we got married that there was a right way and a wrong way to hang the toilet paper roll in the bathroom until she met me. And by the way, I could introduce you all to the right way of hanging a toilet paper roll is the way that you didn't have to do it yourself. However it gets done is fine. Uh, I learned in marriage that there's a right way and a wrong way to fold bath towels. Didn't know that before. We all kind of have to a level or another some kind of, uh, some kind of a control instinct. And we want to grab control over and, uh, and maintain over. Now this is, a, this is a spectrum, church, and we want to be real with that. And it's kind of fun and lighthearted on one side, but then it, it goes to a... Con- uh, on the other end of the spectrum, a kind of control that, that almost looks more like manipulation, intentional manipulation, and it's, and it's hurt. Uh, somewhere in the middle ways, maybe there's uh, control manipulation, maybe it's unintentional. But what we're recognizing together is that it all comes from a place that hurt people hurt people. And so we're trying to learn how to figure out how not just to live with, but to love the, the difficult, the, the controlling people, manipulating people in our lives. I want to kind of lay the ground rules and just an observation, I guess, of our conversation today is that controlling people tend to weaponize, uh, tend to use two different levers to get what they want to maintain control. The first one is threats. 
uh, hey, listen, fall in line or else. You know, uh, do this or pay the punishment for not doing it. There's threats that are made. Sometimes we see this playing through, unfortunately, in relationships. We can see some of the threats come through even in romantic relationships. Uh, I'm thinking of somebody in a dating context and uh, it's voiced either uh, explicitly or implicitly. Listen, if we don't go here, if we don't cross this boundary, cross this line that you've put up, if we don't do this romantically, physically together, I'm going to find somebody else. I'll break up with you. It's a threat. We see that not just going away in marriage, we see that even growing in marriage with this leverage kind of thing that looks like, listen, if you don't fall in line, if you don't start or stop X, I will find somebody else. I will leave you. Divorce is on the table. And we can see manipulators, controllers start to use these leverage, uh, levers of number one, threats. We see this in the workplace. Bosses where you're just like walking around them and it feels like you're walking on eggshells and you don't really know where you stand at any given point. Controllers use the lever of threats. They also use the lever of guilt. When you show up to the family thing and it's like, man, it's so awesome that you came around. I wish you'd come around a little more often. You know, in, in fact, uh, I'm so lonely all the time that if something were to happen, man, I could be dead for like three weeks before anybody would even notice. How do you feel about that? And it's like, oh, man, controllers use threats. They also use guilt to get what they want. So again, we have to figure out how, not just to live with, but in the name of Jesus, show love to controlling, manipulating people in our lives. And there's no better way to do that than to go to the source, to go to Jesus, who is going to give us a master class this morning on how to deal and how to show love to one particular controlling person in his life. So let's go there. Let's go to Matthew chapter 16. You can follow along in the Bible, uh, paper Bible, or on your phones. Again, phone friendly, so not offended. Matthew 16, for those of you Bible nerds, kind of like myself, you're welcome in this, in this space. It marks a shift, a change in the tone of the ministry of Jesus. Like Matthew 1 to 13, Jesus is talking to a large crowds. He's speaking in parables. Uh, he's kind of communicating for everybody. Matthew 16, there's a, a shift in his language. He's no longer talking mainly to large crowds in parables. He's now hanging out with just his disciples most of the time. There's a decidedly darker, maybe more somber tone in the ministry of Jesus starting in this passage here, where it's like Jesus, he knows what's about to happen, and he's spending the last moments of his life, really connecting this, not just to the masses, but to the few. His close followers, the disciples. And so we pick up the story as Jesus is explaining once more his ministry in verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples, mainly not everybody, but just the disciples, that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Now this, this hadn't happened yet. And so the disciples are now like after the fact recalling, man, you remember that one time that Jesus like sat us down and had this like kitchen table conversation, looked at us in the eye and said, I'm going to suffer and then I'm going to die. They're going to bury me. And three days later, I'm going to come back to life again. 
Now the disciples, Matthew is writing this after the fact and going, he called his shots. And I know we said it once and we'll keep saying it again. When somebody says that they're going to die and then God's going to raise them from the dead after three days, like he has earned the right to be heard. We're going to listen. We're going to hear him out. And that's what Jesus does. He lays out his ministry. He calls his shots. And then verse 22, Peter now takes Jesus aside, important, and began to rebuke him. Peter is rebuking God. (laughs) And Peter says, Never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. We've got Jesus as the one who's teaching us how to love uh, the difficult, controlling, even manipulating people in our lives. Peter is the one who wears the hat of the manipulating, the controlling person in Jesus' life. Notice what he does. Peter pulls Jesus off to the side, kind of isolates him out from the rest rebukes him and says, never, Lord, you have a plan. I have a better plan. Fall in line with my plan. Some of you with controlling people in your lives, you know, you recognize this pattern. This is, this is how it works. There's like this isolation separating out from the pact. Now that you're alone, now that nobody's around to, to tell you wiser, let me just put you into place. And show you my expectation. Let me just pull those, those levers of threats and guilt a little harder. Peter says, never, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But Jesus, verse 23, turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You don't have the, in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves Take up their cross and follow me. Amen. Amen. Now, we're here to learn how not just to live with, but to love controlling people. And so we're going to see Jesus, like I said, put on this masterclass of how to do that. The first thing that we have to realize, number one, is that we need to know our own calling before we try to resist the levers, the threats, and the guilt of those in our lives who are seeking to control and manipulating us. Know our own calling. Jesus has, Jesus puts this on perfectly. Because what he does, he just explained to the disciples everything that's about to happen. Jesus has his calling clear and locked in. Not just here in this passage that we just read about. Jesus knew his calling from the beginning. I mean, he steps onto scene and says, this is what I'm about. I came to seek and save everything that was lost. Jesus says, I did not come for the healthy. I came for the sick. I didn't come for the righteous, but the unrighteous and the self-righteous, I came for them. I I, I didn't come just to be served. I came to serve and even to pour my life out as a ransom for many, once and for all and for all who would believe and follow me. Jesus was clear about his mission. No your calling. It's the starting place for how to love the controlling people. It's just to first know ourselves, know that God made you on purpose for a purpose, that God made you and God has called you who you are so that you know who you are. You know better than that whose you are. That's hard, right? I mean, honestly, we spent an entire series on this. 
the last series was making Monday matter. And we just tried to like figure out together like, like what our callings are. And I know that a three-part series didn't just eliminate all of the questions that you have on that front. And so just to kind of catch us up a little bit, remember, uh, sometimes when we think about the calling that we have, we think about huge callings that probably, honestly, other people have. And we think, man, I wish I had a calling like that. Like, we think, okay, I got to discover my calling. Like, what am I supposed to do? I, I guess I'm supposed to, uh, calling, like, God's calling, cure cancer? That seems like a worthy calling. What kind of cancer? I don't, all of them. Like, just that's my, and until I get there, like, I guess I don't have one. And it's kind of that squishy, and then the controlling and all the nasty stuff starts to happen. Or we think maybe it's not science, curing all the, all the cancers. Um, maybe it's a, a Maybe it's a witness thing, a missionary thing. I'm going to be sent off as a missionary to Mongolian, a high calling. But unfortunately, until we try to figure out like what that massive high calling is, like we don't do anything in the meantime, and we don't understand that each of us, again, we're made on purpose for a purpose. And so if I want to like help you kind of know your calling with the clarity that Jesus knows his calling in the passage here, I say that probably honestly, it's relational in nature because God has this way, Jesus has this way of taking the high calling of, of changing the world, but, but really what he does is, is he changes it through people. Like his entire ministry is always about people. And we kind of heard about this as it relates to, to business and leadership and, and policy making. Yeah, we can talk about good policies that, uh, that help organization run smoothly, but really isn't it, isn't it at the end of the day about people? It's about the people that you work with to help them succeed. It's about the customers to get a product on time to serve them. It's always, it's always first and last about people, the things, the data, the systems, they serve people. And so as you're thinking about your calling and knowing your calling, it's probably more simple than you think it is. It's probably about people. It's probably about the people closest to you and me. I want to be honest, church. Like, I, I have a, a high view of the honor that you have given me to stand on this stage and to open up the scriptures and in audacity, expect the scriptures to open up our lives and our hearts together. Like, this is, this is a privilege of mine. It's a, it's a high calling. Spiritually, it's a high calling just for me, just for me to ask for your attention. I had a, I had a speech teacher one time who said, hey, listen, um, key to effective speeches. And I'm like, oh, this is going to be helpful. Uh, he said, first thing is, like, look around at all the people uh, in the room and online who are who are, you're asking their attention of, and to add up however many people that is, and to figure out how many human hours that you're actually asking for. So if there's 500 people that you're asking to tune in and watch for about a half an hour, that's 250 human hours. That's a high responsibility that I don't take lightly. But when it comes to calling this, isn't in my top bracket. In fact, this doesn't even make the top three. And I would encourage you not to let it crack your top few either. The highest calling that I have in my life 
is to recognize again and again each new morning that I am a child of God. That I am loved by God to death and back again to new life. Highest calling. And if you follow Jesus, I would say that is yours as well. Uh, Since I'm married, my next calling would be to love and to serve my wife well. I'm a father, and so I'm called to to lead my kids into a relationship with Jesus as well. Those are my top three. And then what I do for the rest of the week falls in line after that. Uh, Know your calling. Know also the order of your calling. It's, It's clarifying. It's deeply clarifying. I also want to be a people pleaser at times. I want to like serve people. Some of you guys can relate. You get it. How many of you like wanted to put your hands up right now just to make me feel better and not alone? You're a people person too. And with the people pleasing, what it does, right? right? At the end of the day, at the end of the day, the biblical word to describe that is idolatry because we're, we're taking other people's opinions of us ahead of God's calling for us. So instead of asking what other people want of us, we ask what God, God, what is your calling? What is the order of your calling in my life? Uh, first one, uh, how, to, how to show love uh, to controlling people. We need to recognize, know your calling. Uh, second one is to recognize controlling behavior. Let me, let me ask you a question. Was Peter, in your mind, like is Peter the worst human being ever? Like probably not, right? Think about some of the facts. Like you're just picking up the story, you're driving it on Matthew 16. You know a few things about God. You know that God, since the beginning of time, watched as this thing was created. He made it all. He loved it all. It's good, it's good, it's good. It's very good. And then he watched all of it descend into brokenness and hurt and pain and chaos and sin. And then from that moment, like God had this plan in mind that I'm going to seek and save what is lost. I'm not going to let anything go. I'm going to make everything sad come untrue. I'm going to step into myself. God says, I am going to step into into the world that I made and save it from the inside out. It's going to cost me my life and it's going to hurt dearly. But listen, that's, I'm going to bring it all back and save it all. And then at the apex of history, Peter comes along and has the audacity to say, maybe we don't? Like, who is this guy? He comes along like, I don't know, maybe we let it go. Jesus I'm never going to allow your plan to happen. Peter. You know, is, is he like the worst guy ever? I don't think so. You probably don't think so. I mean, Peter, he, in the passage previous to this one, Peter had just won Jesus' jeopardy. <laughs> Jesus sometimes likes to play these games and ask these questions uh, to his followers, to his disciples. And so Jesus kind of lays it out and says, uh, you know, for 100 points, who do people say that I am? And people, his disciples, they start guessing. And they're like, you know, it's Elijah, the prophet, like, come back. John the Baptist, come back. He was a pretty amazing person. And Jesus is like, okay, Peter, for a thousand points, who do you say I am? And Peter, empowered by the Holy Spirit, says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, I'm sorry you didn't answer in the form of a question. <laughs> But other than that, you're right. Peter kind of got it. He's not the worst person. What's happening 
is that controlling, manipulating, it can happen intentionally, and you've seen that play out. It can also happen unintentionally. It can just kind of be the default. It can just be kind of what goes on in our life and in our relationships. Somebody told me one time that, um, that what you experience in a relationship, I mean, is it work, a romantic friendship, uh, what you experience in any kind of relationship is a combination, listen to this, of what you create and what you allow. Ooh, preaching to someone this morning. We're going to get into it. This is going to be a little tough. And you know there's going to be some action steps in your life that are going to be difficult, but it's, it's better on the outside. It's better afterward, I promise. But, but your relationships are a combination of what you create, the systems, the routines, the disciplines that you create, and the unhealthy systems and routines and disciplines that you just simply allow. Example. When I was in college, a few of my close buddies, we decided we're going to move out of the, the school's dorms and we're going to move into, we're going to rent a house together. And there's seven of us. And looking back, there's no way that that was legal in any realm. But we're like, hey, listen, four of us will sign. Like, it'll be fine. Like, the other way. It was not a big house. Seven of us crowded in as we split the rent and the utilities and froze our tails off anyway. But we all crowded in. And we're like, okay, we know ourselves and left to our own devices. Like, we will just drive this thing into the ground. We won't make it past next Tuesday. So we need some systems, don't we, to, like, maintain, like, some kind of some kind of cleanliness around here. So we created a system that we knew could never be beaten. It was a chore wheel. And we were the first people, I can't even say it with a straight face, uh, to ever employ this system, a chore wheel, right? Everybody has a name on the outside, chores on the inside, and we rotate the chores every week so it's fair and it's equal and everything gets done. And you know how it goes. Like every week somebody, it's usually the same person, doesn't do their chores because they just, they just don't care. And we all, we didn't create it, we all allowed it to happen. So finally we're getting just fed up just seeing like the one thing that's not done every single week and we decide, call a house meeting, like that's a thing. But anyway, we call a house meeting, everybody's there. Okay, if you don't do your chores by Saturday at midnight, we're not going to stand for it. We're going we're gonna to demand that you buy pizza the following day and feed the house of seven guys. We can go through some pizza so you don't need that financial burden over your head. Saturday night comes around, 11, 11.30, 11.59. We're all kind of huddled together. It's going to be feast time. Midnight strikes and we're celebrating pizza. We never got pizza. <laughs> This is like a guy that ignored the chore wheel the whole time. It's like all of a sudden now he was going to start buying us pizza for ignoring the chore wheel. No, he just ignored that too. I mean, this thing just went on and on for years, and eventually they kicked me out. <laughs> mostly kidding, mostly kidding. <laughs> the relationships that we have, right, the relationships that we have, the systems are a combination of what we create and what we allow. And so we know our callings, we recognize the controlling behavior, and then, and then something needs to change. And when we need a change, when we have to see a change, we have to change both in what we expect and both in what we accept. The third thing, Jesus, we see him, master class here, 
drawing the line of those expectations on what he would accept. Verse 23, this is what it looks like. Jesus, when Peter comes up to him and says, never, I'm never going to allow it. I'm going to subvert the mission of God. Me, just one guy at this random point in history. Never, Lord Jesus, turns to Peter and says this awesome line that's one of my favorites in all of Scripture, get behind me, Satan. He draws that line. So when you go to this family thing coming up at the end of the month and grandma is like, hey, listen, why don't you come and visit me? And you say, get be, do not call your grandmother Satan. <laughs> don't trace this back to me. I can take down the website. I'm not, not connected to that. There's a point though, right? There's a, there's a point. Jesus draws that line. And he says, no, I'm not going to let you subvert the mission of God in my life. I'm not going to, I'm not going to allow it. I would not recommend calling the people potentially closest to you Satan, but what Jesus shows us is that there can be firm and loving language. Some of the language, some of the language that people have used with me, some of the language that I have learned to use, some other people, that was just, honestly, it's helpful. It's just telling me, listen, I, I care. I care about you. But I'm not going to allow this to go on. I love you. But this is a boundary that's not appropriate to step across. Or it's because I love you that I simply will not bail you out anymore. You're going to have to experience the consequences for yourself. It's just some helpful language that I've learned to, to help do what Jesus is teaching us to do, to draw that line clearly. You know, I got to see this as many of us do. Uh, in the grocery store the other day where you're, uh, you're doing, the, doing the shopping and, and there's a mom with a, just a precious, adorable-looking three-year-old terrorist just right, right at, at her hip. And, uh, and that kid gets to the, like, the checkout, you know, and, and uh, he wants one of these, like, novelty-sized candy bars that are roughly the size of his face, right? And he's like, I want it! And mom is doing just like drawing the line, you know, changing her expectations of what she will accept and not accept, like doing the whole thing and just loving but firm. No, we're not going to choose that, right? But the, the quieter and the more calm she gets, the, the little, little kiddo just ratchets up the volume, but I want it. And everybody in the store is now like looking to, to watch this scene unfold, mostly for the safety of the mother after they hear the screams of this kid, right? And after this thing kind of goes on for a little while like everybody's like okay it's good for the first few minutes 15 minutes later 20 minutes later mom is now surrendering because the terrorist has control over the situation she leaves the cart in the middle of the aisle and just leaves without candy bar in hand and I think every parent around can relate to that and, and is going to be the first ones to like, no, I'll put the things away for you. Like, like, you did it. You did it. What you did is that if you didn't like what you were getting, what you had, you changed what you expected and what you would accept. So those instincts come from a place. I think those instincts come from God himself. Some of you have been around here for a little while. You know that my favorite story in the world uh, it comes from Luke 15. It, it comes from the lost son's story that Jesus told. Where a man, there was a father who had two sons. 
And the younger one comes to him and says, Dad, I wish you were dead. But I don't even want to wait that long. So can you just can you just give me the inheritance a little bit early and we can move on? And I, I don't know why. I don't know if the, if the father in the story is manipulated, if he was being controlled or, or what it was, but he says yes. He splits his inheritance between the two boys and the younger one goes off and, and squanders it on what, what Jesus calls wild living. And we just use our imaginations on what that meant. Or better yet, in church, don't use your imaginations on what that meant. But it came to this place where this kid just wastes everything. And and physically, he's on his back looking up at the bottom side of a pig. And he recognizes a change has to be made here. And so he gathers up what little he has left and he starts rehearsing his speech on the long road home. Now Jesus tells the story and and my favorite line in it is how the father looks over and while his son, it says, while his son was still a long ways off, dad saw him and ran to him. And it hits me, it gets to me in the story because it means that, that every single day dad was on the front porch on his toes watching for his son to come over the hill and down the path. I also believe that if dad was watching for his son every single day, he was praying for his son every single day as well. But you know what he didn't do? He didn't go away to a far-off place, grab his kid, screw up kid by his ear, and lead him that long walk home. What he didn't do is twist his arm, threaten him. Listen, man, if you don't get your tail back into this house, I'm going to send some people after you and you're not going to like. What he didn't do, your mom misses you. What am I supposed to tell her? Pull the lever of guilt. Dad just allows him. He paints the expectations of what he would accept. And it made it that much sweeter when this kid came home. And Jesus telling of the story, it wasn't done because it was an older brother. Fuming that dad would finally now throw a party when his kid came home. His kid out in the field, the older brother, just refusing to go in. Dad goes out. And he listens. All these years I've been slaving for you. I didn't want to slave, I wanted a son. Dad doesn't grab him by the ear. Dad doesn't pull the lever of threats or guilt with him either. Jesus just ends the story. And we don't know if he ever went in or not. We see God showing us what love looks like. Even with the controlling people, what love looks like. Not pulling the threats, not pulling the guilt trips changing what we would expect or accept. Now there's a twist in the story, though. The twist in the story is that this entire time, what we do is we step our feet into the shoes of Jesus in the story. And we're trying to learn how Jesus responds and loves the controlling person, Peter, in his life. 
we're not Jesus. The twist in the story is if you're going to write your in, yourself in, if I'm going to write myself in, I'm not Jesus. I'm Peter. Once I see myself through the lens of Peter, a lot of things come into clarity for me. And my controlling tendencies, man, I just wish I could get Kristen, I just wish I could get my wife to like do things the way I want them done, period, full stop. I wish my kids sometimes would just be little robots and do what I asked the first time. I just wish that my church and my church board would just fall in line with just exactly what I have in store and not like question things all the time. I just, I just, I just wish that I could control everything. I just wish that I could be God for a moment. I would make a terrible God. Chances are you can relate a little bit with Peter wanting to control things, wanting to guarantee the outcome of some things. I think that you're a little bit more like Peter as well. And I love you, but you would make a terrible God as well. Your God in that case is just far too small. there's a twist on the twist <laughs> is that Jesus already knows that each one of us are Peter in this story we're the controlling ones in this story and the twist on the twist is Jesus just previous to this story knows Peter and knows what he's about to do and still says Peter on you I will build my church on you and me as broken as fallible as sinful as we are Still, I love you to death and back. And I'll continue to do great things, powerful things, through you. Because once more, you are made for a purpose, on purpose. God says, I know who you are. More than that, I know whose you are. So together, let's respond to him and let's say yes to Jesus. I invite you to stand up for this last song. During the song, as we uh, continue worshiping out, uh, if you want to head to uh, one of the prayer tables and back at all of our locations, uh, you're welcome to do so. Uh, just under the cover of the song, we, we love that. As well, if you want to participate with doing good during the song, pull out your phone, be led, absolutely. Encounterchurch.org slash doing good. Let's pray to God our heaven right now. God, we, we come to you with a confession in our hearts. We come to you recognizing that we all want to be you, Jesus, and we want to do your job for you. But in our moments of maybe a little more clarity, we recognize, we recognize why we're not in your seat and why you are. And so, God, we, uh, we confess to you all the ways that we try to control and manipulate and to try to guarantee these outcomes. And so, God, we accept your gracious forgiveness and ask for your empowerment this week to step outside of ourselves as to try to receive and to try to show love to even those difficult people that you put in our lives. God, I guess what we're trying to say through all this is that we're available for your leading. 
Lead us well, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Hey, church. It's our sincere prayer that this message was able to help you find new life in Christ. And if you did find it helpful, would you consider donating to help drive this ministry forward? And don't forget, there's no substitute for doing life together. So find a worship experience, join a small group or a serving team today. You can do all this at EncounterChurch.org.